I woke up this morning and I found myself reading in Psalms 42. And, and then uh, I was also reading in Psalm 55. And just, I found such encouragement. I won't, I won't, I'll just paraphrase them. You can read them. But it was like in both places, David was surrounded by his enemies on every side. Those enemies that stood around and kept saying, where is your God? Implying, God's not with you. He's not, he's not helping you. He's not favorable to you. He's not on your side. Where is your God? And even in, 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 in Psalm 55, it really got me how he said, if this was just an enemy that appeared out of nowhere, you know, this, this wouldn't hurt so bad. But he said, the enemy that I'm facing is someone that I loved. He was my companion. He was my friend. We took sweet counsel together. We went up together, up the mountain of God to the temple of God to worship in the multitudes. Again, this is my paraphrase. But what I, what I, what I kept getting there was how David would say, in that time he would say, but God, I will remember you. Amen. From the heights of Hermon to these va- the valleys below, I will remember you. And I told Regina this morning, I told my wife, I said, you know, today, I'll tell you, if there's anything that helps keep us on the path, it's never forgetting what we felt when God first began to move in our lives. Never forgetting that place of dissatisfaction that we felt, that place where we felt so empty, and yet we longed for God. There was something in us that was saying, God, I don't care how rough the road is. I don't care what you're calling me to do. I have a feeling that though this is a difficult way, that this is the way that leads to life. And I'll tell you, we, we move our way down this pathway. We encounter battles. We encounter struggles along the way. Relationships to work through are not easy. There's a world out there that presents you so many different options to get off of this pathway. But let us never forget. Hallelujah. Let us always remember what we, and that way we'll never lose our first love. And, and it made me think of just my, one of my favorite parts in, in um, the story of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And I, it just came back to me, and I, I, I don't remember what land they were traveling through, but it says that they were traveling through. It was one of those places where something was pulling them off the path. They were either going to be lulled to sleep, and Christian looked at his companion, whether it was hopeful, faithful, I don't remember who it was, and they could feel that pull, wanting to pull them apart, pull them off the pathway, and how one of them looked at the other, and he said, what should we do to, to fight against this feeling? And how one of them said, we should take up, this is my paraphrase, we should take up good Christian discourse. And so the one looked at the other and he said, this is good. Where should we begin? And the other looked and he said, let us begin where Christ began with us. And they went right back to that feeling and they started talking with one another, remembering all of the great things that God had done. It started putting faith inside their hearts for the great things that were still yet to come. And soon they were right through that, that valley. They were right through that area and they'd stayed on the path. They, they, wasn't, they weren't turned against each other. They were companions still moving up that mountain, headed towards the city of God. Amen. Amen. I tell you, I feel that sense in my heart tonight, such a gratitude. Or today, tonight for some of you. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But let's keep going together and let's re- never forget what God has done for us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I read this passage in Isaiah this morning. <clears throat> and pardon me, I'm battling some allergies. So if I sound worse than usual, you have someone to blame. Um, It's in Isaiah 11, and he says, this is a messianic prophecy for telling the coming of Jesus, but I would like to contemplate it in terms of the body of Christ. And if this is a depiction of what the individual Messiah was supposed to be like, 
then it is also a depiction of what we as his corporate body are supposed to be like and what we can expect in this world. He says, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots. And I'll just stop here for just a second and say, if you look, Jeremiah refers to this branch as Yahweh Tzakainu. And he speaks of it in individual terms, but then he also refers to Jerusalem as Yahweh Tzakainu, uh, Yahweh our righteousness. So here he says, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteous judgment, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. There's so much in this to glean from and to receive from, but the line that, that struck me is he says, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. And I just begin to contemplate on spiritual discernment and what it means to recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It means that behind every superficial conflict is a spiritual dynamic. It, it means that behind, underneath every overt, obvious struggle, there is, there is a cosmic force that stands to win or stands to lose. And I think of spiritual discernment when I remember how the Lord called Samuel to the house of Jesse and asked him to choose a king from among Jesse's sons. <clears throat> and Samuel is, a, is an exceptionally wise man. He is a prophet. He is a worker of miracles. He is a speaker of truth. He is a judge of God's people. And yet he gets it wrong over and over and over. But he has such dependence on the Spirit that even though his instincts are wrong, he hears the Lord speaking to him saying, no, this is not the one nor is this the one, nor is this the one, for God does not look on appearances, but on the heart of a man. And as, as we've been facing one barrage after another of, of attacks and accusations and slanders and just really learning what it means to be hated by all men, Jesus said, you will be hated by all men for my namesake. If we're not participating in that, then we're not living by his namesake. Amen. But as I've been contemplating that, I've been praying that the Lord would give His people a discerning ear. That they would give them 
an ability to distinguish between the shepherd who leads goats and the shepherd who leads sheep. That Christ would give people not an affinity for independence, for rebellion, for self-pity, for human drama. That's the shepherd that calls to the goats and the goats baa after that shepherd. But there is another shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And I, I have been praying that the Lord would separate sheep and goats. That as the word of falsehood goes forth, we know it's going to resonate wrongly in the hearts of some. It's going to be just what they needed to exonerate themselves from the path of discipline and obedience. It's going to be just what they needed to say, aha, I knew there was something wrong. You know, Jude speaks of those in the last days being fault finders. He doesn't even say fault searchers. He says fault finders. There are going to be people who are adept at discovering every minute error, every wrong that they can throw in the face of God when they sense that God is calling them in, the, in a direction they don't want to go and they want an excuse that lets them off the hook and allows them to go their own way. And then also, <clears throat> I was contemplating this week about uh, some challenges that I received and uh, I understand the nature of the challenges and I, I respect the need to ask the questions, but um, I, was, I was asked why and how I could speak with such conviction and such seriousness about a matter uh, where a brother had, had broken his word, had behaved cowardly, had broken his covenant with the body of Christ, and why would I speak? Why would I write him in a letter and be so strong in my language? You know, strong language is the gift that God has given me. I feel like when people are nearly deaf, one must scream the louder, and when people are, merely blind, are nearly blind, one must write in huge letters, as it has been said. And, and so I'm not going to apologize for that, but I've been contemplating that. And I began to think of all the times where Jesus discerned people's thoughts and intents and their hearts, and He spoke to something that was going on that did not surface to the eyes of the flesh. He did not judge by what His eyes saw. Now, in modern-day Christianity, rebuke is something that does not occur. At best, there's a petulant dis display of selfish indignation that, that occasionally surfaces. But real rebuke does not happen. And I ask myself, is that because we have improved from the New Testament? Is that because we have moved on to a greater level of righteousness than the Lord Jesus? Um, and, and, and this question is constantly put forth, is that a Christ-like spirit? And that's a question I ask myself, and we all should ask ourselves. But come on, have we read the Gospels recently? Have we seen how He spoke to people? Have we seen the sharpness of His words, the seriousness of His tone, the challenge that He posed to, to those who, who manipulatively sought to destroy Him? And... Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And I, I thought of, 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 uh, of how Jesus, when He was walking with His friends and He began to tell them of the crucifixion, Peter did not exhibit some 
outwardly rebellious display. And yet he got this incredibly sharp rebuke from the Lord. And in modern churches, if someone commits some heinous crime, like murder, maybe, or like some horrible crime, they might get a rebuke. But there's no sense that Christians as brothers are supposed to be feeling after the Spirit and discerning attitudes and spirits and attitudes of heart and addressing those matters, right? And yet Paul told Timothy, sharply rebuke them. He, he used that phrase, sharply rebuke them. When was the last time you heard a pastor sharply rebuke sin? Because if it hasn't happened, then I would suggest that he's shepherding himself. He is cultivating his image. He's refusing to lay down his life in the eyes of the sheep. Instead, he's wanting the sheep to love him, to like him, to speak well of him. He wants to be loved by all. Jesus laid his life down. And when he said that, when he said, I lay down, lay down my life willingly, no one takes it from me, they thought he was saying that he was going to commit suicide. Because nobody could conceive of a way that someone would lay down their life without taking their life. But what he was doing is he was looking in the face of people who need, needed to hear truth, knowing that if he spoke that truth, they were going to hate him to the point of murder. And instead of preserving his life, he laid his life down by speaking truth to people who would kill him for that truth. But among that crowd, there was one who later held the cloak of Stephen. Among that crowd of Pharisees, of, of the Sanhedrin, there were two, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who allowed their hearts to be touched and moved and perhaps changed by the word that he spoke, knowing that word would cost him his life. First, it would cost him respect in the eyes of leaders. Then it would cost him the, the re respect and acceptance of the crowd. Finally, it would cost him the ability to, to be understood at all. He was going to be an enigma. Even Peter was going to say, we don't understand, but where else can we go? And finally, it would cost him his life. And he chose to speak it. Amen. Uh, can we get a couple scriptures here? Brother, do you mind getting Matthew 9 and 4? And do you mind getting Matthew 12, 25? Could you get Matthew 22, 18 through 23? Maybe we'll start with Brother Gabe. Matthew 12, 25. Get Mark 2, 8. That's a better rendering of the same event. Matthew 22, 18 through 23. Go ahead. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house or house divided against itself will not stand. So Jesus spoke this seminal truth about the kingdom being divided against itself, not because of what somebody said, not because of some horrible action they committed, but because he discerned their thoughts. He did not judge by what his eyes perceived, but he judged righteously, and he spoke to what he saw in the Spirit. Brother Nathan, do you mind reading uh, Mark 2 and 8, I think it is? Yes, and this is where Jesus had just healed the paralytic. Okay. And they'd, they'd brought the paralytic in through the roof. Jesus had told them, your sins are forgiven. And then that's when they began to think, the why Pharisees. is this man, the Pharisees, why is this man speaking blasphemies like this? Now, they but, didn't say he was speaking blasphemies. They just thought it. 
Mm -hmm. They just had these sinful accusations in their hearts. Okay. Reasoning in their hearts, verse 6. Verse 8, as you asked, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? And he began to speak to them, did he not? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Amen. And immediately he arose. Amen. Sister Regina, do you want to read yours? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image is and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Okay. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. <laughs> okay, so he calls them hypocrites. He rebukes them and calls them hypocrites and judges them as false religious hypocrites because he perceived their thoughts. Not because they transparently said something that put them on the hook. Not because they killed someone in his presence. Not because he saw them steal money out of a widow's bag. But because he detected their thoughts. And he spoke to spiritual dynamics that did not surface as visible actions. And now I was reading in Acts 8 where... Philip had gone down and made many disciples in Samaria, and he had baptized people, and they had received uh, they had received Jesus. They had believed on the Lord and been baptized, but none of them had yet received the Holy Spirit. And so they send for the apostles, and when Peter comes down, um, they lay hands on the people, and they begin to receive the Holy Spirit. Now there was a there was a man who had believed on Jesus, whose name was Simon, the sorcerer. He had believed on Jesus, and he had been baptized. But he had not yet received power. And so when Peter laid his hands on the, on the brethren there in Samaria, and they began to receive the Holy Spirit, it was so powerful that this magician says, I would like to offer money to do that for people as well. He knew that receiving the Spirit was more powerful than all his magic tricks, and he wanted to, he wanted to pay for the ability to pray for people and let them get the Holy Ghost like Peter was. And what did, what did Peter say to him? Well, the first thing he said is, I perceive. He didn't say, um, Simon, why don't you talk to Philip about that? But in fairness, we don't sell the gifts of God to people. So you're going to need to pray for them, not buy them. The, the question was a simple enough, even a foolish request. Can we agree with that? Can I pay for the power to give people the Spirit? That's something a kid might say. But Peter didn't speak to that. He, he said, your money perish with you. You will be blind and so on and so forth. But then he says, I perceive. I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. And then he began to pronounce judgment and rebuke against what he perceived. You see, everybody heard the request to pay for money, to pay money for the Holy Spirit, right? But Peter perceived something was going on. This man was bitter. 
This man was caught in bitterness and he was in the bonds of iniquity. And Peter rebuked him for what he perceived and not for the request to have the Holy Spirit with money. Excuse me. Amen. And I just, <clears throat> how many times does the Lord treat sin in a manner that is far more severe than we would think appropriate? How many times? How many times does God deal with sin in a manner far more severe than we would think appropriate? And if this is a pattern, should it speak something to us about the difference in the way the Lord perceives sin and the way we perceive sin? When God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to partake of every tree in this garden, but not this one in the middle of the garden, for in the day of you eat of it, dying you will die. And they went and partook of it. He put them out of his presence. He put them out of the garden and he put a flaming angel blocking their, their re-entrance. Now I tell you, God is a loving shepherd. He is a father. He so loved us that he gave his own son to save us. But we think we're more loving than God. If we brought any kind of ultimate consequences to an individual under our care, we would be judged as unloving and not Christ-like. When Moses received the call of God and trembled before the burning bush, and the Lord said, go set my people free. This man, who is greater than any human being before Jesus, answers the call of God, pulls up stakes, and heads to Egypt. But on the way to Egypt, something remarkable happens. The angel of the Lord stands before him prepared to kill Moses for one disobedience because Moses had not circumcised his sons, his young sons. Now, the exchange between Zipporah, his wife, and him seems to indicate that Moses, his wife, didn't agree with this new Hebrew practice of circumcision. She probably thought it was barbaric. And so she throws the foreskins at his feet and says, you are a husband of blood to me. Never mind, he was about to get killed. But she blames him. She doesn't recognize it as the will of God. And I ask you, is that how we view sin? One little infraction, one little breaking, one little tampering with the covenant of circumcision. I don't mean circumcision in the flesh. But one little tampering with God's covenant and the angel of the Lord is ready to kill us? Is God overreacting? Because that's what pastors and fathers are terrified of, is overreacting. And I, I'll tell you, anything that is done outside of love is sin. Anything that is done outside of faith is sin. Anything that is done in, in wrath or, or the flesh is sin. So I'm not suggesting that kind of ugliness. But I do want to be a father like my father in heaven. And so I'm trying to grapple with this sweetness that is called Christianity and the reality that I confront in the scriptures where the Lord seems to take sin very seriously. When David was bringing back the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to Jerusalem, a man saw the Ark start to wobble. And the Lord had said that nobody but a Levite could touch the Ark of the Covenant God cares about covenant. He doesn't like covenant breakers. He doesn't like covenant tamperers. 
So he's about to kill Moses for not circumcising his sons. And now this layman sees the ark wobbling. His name is Uzzah. And the poor guy reaches out to stabilize the ark. And immediately God strikes him dead. Was God overreacting? Was he being harsh? Was he abandoning his Christ-like spirit in that moment? Or is he trying to show us that we view sin differently than he does? You see, if we view sin as, you know, everybody's got it, not a big deal, because Christ's already atoned for you, and you've already uh, appropriated that atonement through a one-time belief, then why treat sin seriously? But if God views sin as an existential threat to relationship, and if he views relationship as salvation, then he's going to be very direct with us in helping us to overcome our sin. A surgeon is not kind who massages the tumor on your body and says, I just feel so much compassion for you, but I just trust that you're going to be healed. A surgeon is kind who sees the sin, who sees the tumor and says, friend, believe me, it's going to hurt. It even risks death, but I am going to bring the sword of the spirit, so to speak. I am going to excise this sin from your life. I'm going to excise this disease from your body and you're going to live. Is the word of God not called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? And are we not cursed if we withhold our swords from that activity, according to Jeremiah? You say, oh, you're quoting all Old Testament scriptures. Really? Really? What about Jesus when he told his disciples he was going to suffer and die on the cross and rise from the, from the dead the third day? His closest apostle begins to express what most would understand as compassion and affection. And he says, Lord, no, this will not be. We won't let this happen, basically. Now, I don't know a friend who wouldn't say that to another friend. But Jesus wasn't wanting human affection. He was wanting people to hear the voice of God. He was wanting Peter to recognize in this sober telling of the future that God had a purpose. It always gets me that Peter only heard about the cross. He totally omitted that Jesus said, and on the third day he will rise. He didn't say, wow, talk to me about resurrection. This was a fearful man like me and you. And when he heard about the cross, he's like, this will not be. And Jesus did not say, well, let me show you how beatific I am. Let me show you how magnanimous I am. Let me show you how patient I am. Let me tolerate this self-serving fear that rules your life. No, Jesus knew what it says in Hebrews 2.14 that Satan holds people in bondage all their lifetime through the fear of death. He knew what John later said, he who fears has not been perfected in love. And he knew this wasn't really godly love coming from his friend. It was just panic. And so what did he say? He spun around and he said, get behind me, Satan, because you love and savor the things that be of man more than the things of God. He called his friend Satan, and he said, you are a stumbling block to me. This sweetness coming from Peter felt like a trip in the path of the Lord. The Son of God was tempted to trip over Peter's sweetness. 
And he didn't say, look, this is making it harder on me, man. Just try to understand God's got a bigger plan. He was sharp with fear. He understood it as an evil heart of unbelief that makes one depart from the living God. And he said, get thou behind me, Satan. Now, when was the last time? I'm not, I've never called anybody Satan, and I don't plan to. But don't give me this garbage that I don't have a Christ-like spirit when I speak with sin or about sin or against sin as if it were deadly. It is. And if we don't learn to deal with it in ourselves and in each other and to be vulnerable to that kind of correction, we're going to be taken captive through the deceitfulness of unrighteousness. You know, there's unrighteousness that doesn't, it doesn't have the temptation of deceit in it. It's not, it's not hard to overcome. It's like, yeah, that's obviously wicked. But the unrighteousness that is dangerous is the one that seems like love, the one that seems sweet, right? And so I ask you, was Jesus overreacting when he called his friend Satan, identifying him as a tool of the devil for expressing something that you and I would think was sweet? What about Peter after he's an apostle of the church and a man comes in who agreed with his wife to lie. He just lied. And Peter releases a judgment. And that man, Ananias, falls dead at his feet. Peter knows exactly what he's doing. And he makes himself an agent of judgment against this man. Because he sees the sin and the deception and the disingenuousness that this man introduces as a scourge that is going to threaten the survival of this young church. His wife comes in. He asks her the same questions. And, and, and then she falls dead at his feet. Was Peter overreacting? Was the Lord overreacting through Peter? What happened to their Christ-like spirit? Or did they understand sin as something far more lethal to our salvation than you and I do. What about when Paul came to Galatia and there he found Peter behaving hypocritically and he doesn't take him aside. In front of the entire church he says, you're a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. You behaved one way when James was absent and now that James is here you want to make a good showing among the Jews. You hypocrite. It says, Paul says, I withstood him to his face. He got up in Peter's face and he rebuked him. And you know, this is all very scary and none of us like to be rebuked. I don't like it and I certainly don't like to rebuke anybody. But it comes down to whether we're going to be ashamed of the cross. Amen. And I, I, want to, I want to speak the word of truth with as much gentleness and patience as I can. But I want to call a spade a spade. Because if I see sin, if I see attitudes... If I see self-deception as something capable of costing someone their soul and I sit around and preserve my image and make sure that I look, look right in their eyes, then I am a fraud and I make myself complicit in their demise. Ezekiel said, if the watchman sees the sword of judgment coming and he sounds an alarm and the people ignore it, their blood is on their hands. But he said, if the watchman sees the sword of judgment coming and he doesn't sound the alarm, then the blood of the people will be 
required at the hands of the watchman. You see, it's time for men of God to call a spade a spade, to recognize sin for what it is, to call it out, and to do so with as much gentleness and patience and sweetness as possible. But in the end, the objective is not to preserve our image. The objective must be to free the person from the sin. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so for those who, who think that maybe we treat things too seriously, I ask you to take your standard of measure and hold it against the Lord, Jesus, Peter, and Paul, and find out, do you treat sin the same way as they did? Do you respond with as much authority of truth? You know, they didn't think they were perfect. Well, Jesus was, but the rest didn't think they were perfect. They didn't lose all their compassion, but they saw something deadly threatening the life of someone they loved. If we see sin, if we see the plunge into self-deception <clears throat> for what it is, we're going to sound an alarm. Now, I want to remind you that in the book of Proverbs, he talks twice about the way that ends in death. And what does he say? Does he say the way that ends in death is accompanied by obvious, gross, atrocious, moral sin? Is that the way that he says ends in death? No, he says that the way that ends in death is the way that seems right to a man. If you are a man choosing your own path and you think it seems right to you, and if you have a friend who cares about you more than their image, you should expect them to challenge you. What does the psalmist say? Let a righteous man strike me and I will count it as a kindness. Amen. What does he say? The words of a friend are like firmly driven nails. Amen. The faithful words of the wise are like firmly driven nails. God. Amen. We need to ask God to startle us and alert us and sound the alarm. Not when we know we're in gross sin only, but when we are walking in self-deception, thinking that this is the way that is right when we are walking in the way that seems right to us, that's when we most need an alarm that says, Brother, you've been deceived. Something has happened. You have allowed fear to start running your life, or you have allowed pride to slip back onto the throne. Amen. You're behaving as a hypocrite. You're tapping into the, the will of the enemy, as Peter was with Jesus. That's when we need our brothers most. That's when we need confrontation most. Okay, so in short, God give us discernment that does not judge by what our eyes can see, but judges with righteous discernment. Amen. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Amen. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said, you hypocrites. And Paul said, I perceive 
you're in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. And he rebuked according to spiritual perception and discernment, not just according to obvious sin. Mm -hmm. God, help my brothers to check me, to question me, and if necessary, rebuke me, even when they're discerning something in my spirit or my heart that I do not see myself. Amen. Can I add one short thing? Yes, go Just ahead. as an amen. You know, I think that oftentimes when we, when we look at some of these rebukes that you're even talking about, um, it's very, very easy for us also to presume that, uh, you know, a rebuke that comes to someone, a challenge that comes, that this, this was simply a, a one-time thing that came out of nowhere, that there was no context that was surrounding this. And yet when we think about it, Jesus and Peter had been walking with each other. Those rebukes, those came out of the depth of care and relationship. That man, Simon, had obviously been a believer who had been walking in relationship. It's so easy to step in and to see a father rebuking a son and to wonder, wow, what's going on with that? They have no idea the level of relationship that they've walked in, the, the, the steps that they've been talking about, the, the care that the father has for the son. How many times along the way had a father said, now remember to do this, be careful, son. And then the next day, son, you're still not listening to you. remember. It's very easy to jump in at the time that the father says, that's it, you put that away, you won't be doing this anymore, you know? And to jump in and to think, oh boy, that seems strong. We better be very careful that we perceive rightly, as God is speaking to us today, that there is a relationship. This is a familial authority. This is a loving authority of a father that is looking, seeking his sheep, that is saying, ultimately, if my rod and my staff is, is reaching out to redirect, it's because it comforts you ultimately. Amen. If the Spirit of the Lord is moving and it's our comforter, Amen. it yet is still there to convict the world of righteousness, sin, and the judgment to come. Amen. We can thank God and when that rebuke comes, we can also see that behind all of that, it is the voice of the Good Shepherd leading us to a life and a life more abundantly. Isn't that what Jesus says right there in, in John 10? I have come that you may have life and that more abundantly. This is the voice of the Good Shepherd. This is the voice ultimately of the Comforter. And it may bring pain, but ultimately it's the comfort that leads us into, into new pastures. Amen. Amen. That's what I hear and what God is speaking here. God give us ears to hear and eyes to see.